right, we better get into this podcast. Um, welcome back to the Secret Shrine Podcast. This week brought to you remotely once again um, due to this wonderful coronavirus. Today we're going to be talking about the fallacy of listening to good athletes um, or the fallacy of like genetic elite people talking about how they got incredibly good at a certain sport. Um, it's something everyone everyone has come up against in every sport and I think people even come up against it outside of sports you know where someone's like oh I'm not that smart but yet they got 600 points in their leaving cert the kind of genesis for this was in our weightlifting not our weightlifting our YouTube reaction videos to you know like Anthony Joshua or we did the one with the 81s for uh, people are pretty some people are incredibly visceral they were at it, like they were annoyed that we said elite weightlifters made mistakes in their technique or even postulating that Lou might be faking a back injury. I don't even know why that annoyed people. That really yeah. annoyed people, which is very strange. I, do, I didn't get that one. I don't know why that annoyed people. Then we also see that people like her, the Anthony Joshua one where we did, where we talked about the, you know, the fairly well-established sports science in regards to not doing certain things. And they were like, just, sh-. some people are literally like, just shut up. Um, yeah. You know, like, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know about boxing. Uh, they were like segregated results and all this stuff. It gives you se- segregated training, gives you segregated results. And you're like, that's what you want, though. Uh, that's what you're actually aiming for. Did somebody actually say that? Someone was like, yeah, but you got to practice everything because it's 12 rounds of boxing. Um, like, how would you explain, like, basic basic training yeah. to someone who, who thinks like that? So it's, it's kind of funny. People are incredibly attached. They were like, you don't know why Anthony Josh is doing that. And they're like, oh, if you're so good why don't you coach him <laughs> like it, it kind of just sparked the idea that we should probably do yeah we should probably talk we were going to do yeah we're going to do it on a podcast but uh so obviously we have a lot of a personal experience with very good athletes and so we're very lucky to have met some people um the thing i always used to say was you remember like clock off used to be coming around there like tarokity mm. um or even apti was in ireland there for a while uh, and you know as potty raised a good point we we're kind of mentioning this we we're like it we don't want to listen to apti or clock off talk about the training it's their coach you want to listen to talk about their training. Yeah. It's their coach you want to talk to and know why they did what they did. You know, a great example of that was like not to have any of our friends because we don't want to do that. But that's we don't know Ilya, so we'll ask them. So like, for example, Seb was talking to Ilya about why he did block snatches in his career. Because he did like 206 for blocks or 205, I'd say, about crazy lifts, you know. But he did do block cleans and he never did them. And Seb was like, why didn't you do things? And he was like, don't know. I might start doing them now, though. And like that's just a prime example of like how un like untuned in, non tuned in elite athletes can be to their training. Like it first of all, people need to realise elite athletes, it's not their job to know why. It's their yeah. job to do. Just to do. That's full stop. Any time spent t- thinking about why it could have been time spent in- thinking about doing. Yeah. I think the other thing is like you want to like I'd love to talk to somebody who coached Ilya. Um, or talk to Ilya's coach like instead of going to a seminar and, and seeing them lift like seeing them lift is unbelievably entertaining I definitely would go and watch if fucking Klokov was lifting in Ireland I would go and watch Klokov mm-hmm. thrust her 200 kilos or something Um, but mm-hmm. it's not even I don't want to listen to what Klokov is doing now and why his coach would like he doesn't have a coach but why the elite athlete is doing this thing right now like the interesting thing is like what did they do between the ages of 12 and 16 that made them into this thing like when people look for 
um, who's the guy who got gold? Oh, Tarokadi. Uh, so, like, I don't want to see what Tarokadi does in his training or his programming right now because that means nothing to anybody. You know, like, that means nothing to almost anyone we coach. It might mean something to two people in the entire, under the entire umbrella of Sika, that might mean something to, like, less than half a percent of the people. But if I could figure out what Tarokadi did to get up to a 250 kilo front squat or whatever it is they are the interesting pieces um and that's what gets lost when you see like the like somebody interviewing lou about how he does his squat jerk training or uh how many times they might do power jerks versus squat jerks you know like these things don't really matter because the athlete remembers what they're doing now and they might remember some of what they did when they were developing but they won't put as much emphasis or they won't prioritize those developmental stages as much as they probably should you know it's easy to assume that age equals age across lifters so it's easy to assume that um 26 year old lou is applicable to 26 year olds four week old weightlifter baby person who just started lifting four weeks ago because it's easy to assume that well you know what he was doing at 12 doesn't matter but actual fact what should be transferred is exactly like years of training is what you need to be looking at not years when training happened but it was the year of training experience so like so assume that your training age is the age that you need to be looking at so you need to see what Tarokadi was doing or Gabriel was doing or Apti was doing when they were two years into training or less that's what you need to be looking at because it's exactly applicable to you they were as ta- they were more talented when they were 12 than you are now so you know trying to assume what they were doing now is borderline useless to see what they are doing you know um like what they were doing then is what you'd want to see uh, but obviously like fit said like it's just so it's not cool it's not flashy to see that for example in the the book i'm reading at the moment in the russian text a system of multi-year training for beginners 40 percent of their initial training year is spent doing gpp 40 yeah. percent of the year so that's nearly half is spent just doing general training and people don't want to do that like people nobody wants to do that that's not cool it's not weighted rotational punches you know it's it's not like it's not heavy block snatches yeah it's like doing 10 meter sprints as a warm-up at like moderate pace or some shit and then doing half an hour of push-ups and pull-ups it ain't fun like that's not cool like no and that's like the the thing when you see the difference between like what a professional weightlifter um is doing now in their training versus what we would get somebody of an equivalent age but obviously nowhere near that talent profile or even if even if genetically their talent is just as good as that weightlifter but they haven't been training as long like there's weightlifters who squat every day and they squat pretty heavy every day and it keeps them very very well honed and Mm -hmm. it's in no way detrimental to their progress it's incredibly beneficial to their progress but you cannot fucking do that unless you are like a very high level athlete you just can't do it you can do it but you'll get fucking no benefit from it at all yet that's the program people want to do because that's a sexy program like that's the the i i do bulgarian and i do pretty well like you you don't do bulgarian you don't do pretty well because you don't have eight years of general preparation done and your ability to seek out that genetic expression is practically zero there's also kind of a, a fallacy or kind of a, a misinterpretation of what's happening is like you see a, a single action from that elite athlete so you see them doing one thing at one period of time and you assume that's what they always do you know so like 
very often it's 99.999% of the time the person didn't go ask Michael Jordan or didn't go ask Anthony Joshua or didn't go ask um, Gabriel why they were doing what they were doing. They just saw that they were doing that one thing or they saw, you know, maybe not even one training session, but over one course with training block that they saw that they did a lot of heavy jerk dips. So they're like, you know what I need? I definitely need heavy jerk dips. You know, they see a reason. So they interpret while they don't know why they were doing that. They assume there's probably a good reason for why they were doing that. They're not sure what that reason is, but they were like, fuck it, I'll give it a go. Like that's kind of no one's fault in some ways. So that's kind of like not the athlete's fault because he can just portray his training and it's not the lifter's fault for lack of knowledge for why that might happen. Yeah, and I, we have a an example of that, Gurf, where we have a fairly nuanced opinion over why certain lifters do one exercise in particular, and that's heavy front rack, unrack. So, like, you'll see um, mm-hmm. very big with Chinese lifters, very big with mm-hmm. uh, a big cohort of lifters, where they'll do, like, 300 kilo front rack, unracks. And you see people who have, like, 100 kilo cleaning jerks, and they're like, I'm going to fucking... I'm going to get 140 on the bar and I'm going to unrack 140 kilos in the front rack. In our opinion, and this is going to come up for for some sort, I don't know if we talked about this before, but people will not believe this. But our opinion is the reason for super heavyweighted front racks is nothing to do with increased core stability. It's nothing to do with, oh, it will feel great when they stand up with 200 kilos because it fucking, that doesn't make any difference. It's nothing to do with building confidence. It's nothing to do with enhanced motor pattern generation certain androgenic compounds reduced volume around joints in such a way whereby you will immediately lose your ability to front rack a barbell and you can't just get that back with foam rolling lats or voodoo flossing your elbows or insert random expensive myofascial release therapy thing here like a massage gun you can get this back by doing super heavyweighted front rack holds, and I think it works quite well for them. So when you see people doing all these things, now, we don't have confirmation from Lou's coach that this is why Lou is doing this. But mm. we do have confirmation from other coaches as to why their athletes do this. And this is like the classic example of people see this and they're like, oh, it must be because of this. But it's something completely different. The reasoning and rationale behind it isn't even in the same fucking ballpark yet people will still pick it up and put it into their program yeah there's like a misinterpretation of why the athlete is doing what they're doing like a complete misinterpretation like zero concept of why they might be doing that you know one of the things as well i think it's important to emphasize is that we have obviously we've got literally gone to different countries to learn from athletes so we're not saying oh elite athletes don't know nothing but i think it's another fallacy in itself is assume success doesn't leave clues you know yeah but sometimes maybe what they're telling you or what you're seeing isn't a good reason you'll have to use your own intuitive kind of deductive powers to figure out if that's really true or does that line up or is there like multiple similarities across a lot of athletes so when you look at the big similarities you learn from that you know and if you kind of listen to our the comparison of different weightlifting systems it's worth kind of digging into and seeing where we kind of talk really a lot about what are the big similarities across all systems and like they're the things you should be looking at not that micro exercises are not looking at you know the 844 assistance exercises that the chinese team use yeah. for bodybuilding you know like we talked about the chinese weightlifters and like we see they do a lot of uh sometimes we see them do pulls and we see them do a lot of assistance exercises at the world's training hall for example you know and then you make an extrapolation there that we basically you don't know what they do you know but i think it's really important to emphasize that it's not fair to assume 
that elite athlete would know it's not their job it's not it's not for them they don't need to worry about that they shouldn't anytime they spend thinking about what they should be doing or why their training should be how should be structured is this time spent wasted when they could be spent asleep or time spent doing recovery or whatever the fuck it is or doing training or spent not stressing about training like it's so important like you shouldn't assume that that athlete knows what they're doing just because they're lead athletes yeah and like we're not for a second saying like oh athletes are dumb because this you know like athletes are incredibly intuitive like they are literally the best people in the world at doing whatever they do but it's not their like as Gareth said it's not their job to understand why they do it it's their job to physically carry it out and to be in a mental headspace whereby you believe this 100 percent and like a lot of people um we come up with or we come in contact with on a fairly regular basis have this thing where their training will have been stunted for a year or two years or three years when they started coaching for themselves. And the coaching for yourself is where the dangerous kind of paralysis through analysis comes, right? If an athlete starts thinking about rationalization of exercise selection, loading, volume, volume loading, when you combine those uh, training periods, off-season periods, uh, body composition changes, when an athlete starts taking control of that, a lot of the time their performance actually goes downhill fairly significantly because they're taking all of the capital they would have put into being physically ready for training, being mentally ready for training, being tenacious when they compete, and now they have to do two jobs. So, like, we're not shitting on anyone um, by talking about this, but, like, it's literally not an athlete's job. It's like you complaining about your your Volkswagen Golf Golf not being able to tow a 40-foot articulated lorry trailer. It's not its fucking job. It's its job to drive you around but, it to look like, kind of cool. Like, there's a literally the book here, like a system of multi-year training and weightlifting has 278 pages of <laughs> hardcore, sharp edge, Times New Roman and some handwritten notes. Oh. Like, do you think if an athlete is training, uh, Rich Farris talked about training four times a week. He's actually a great example of an athlete who is just getting on with Four times job. a day. Four times a day and not four times a week. So he mentioned, we're like, why do you do that? And he's like, don't know. Coach knows. What are your, what, like, do you have plans of training? He's like, don't know. It's all in coach's head. Everything's in coach's head. And, you know, imagine the scenario, right? You, you were a lead athlete. And River has really portrayed very well about, like, how not fun it might be to an elite, be an elite athlete and how not fun it might be to train all the time. So you understand the angst of not knowing what your program might be. And, like, we get about 10 emails every day asking about what we should do with programming, what they should do with their programming. And obviously we're happy to answer them. That's what we're here for, right? But imagine you're a lead athlete and your whole livelihood depends on you being the best you can be and you having the best possible program and everything being the best possible way, right? So imagine you're coaching yourself and you have to figure out how you structure 28 training sessions a week. And on top of that, perform in the best possible way when it comes to that training. So a lot of times we know what like we've given a lecture there, I think in our, our Facebook group before about being a bitch and all comparison, you're kind of, oh, you take a day off or are you just being a bitch, you know? And every elite athlete will automatically assume that they're being a bitch. Mm. So can you imagine how much you're going to fuck up your own training if you come into every session thinking? Because he said, for example, Ritfires was a good example. So his coach changed things on the daily. Sometimes they'd say something. Or Miso was another great example of that. They're two very, very talented athletes. We, we can use draw up an example of this. They're going to change so significantly every day. So often, and we saw this two two separate occasions meeting Miso. So like once in Uzbekistan and once in Qatar. They literally, 
not even like day by day. So like day by day, they'd be like max, max back squat tomorrow. And they'd end up doing light front squats. Halfway through a session, they just stop and be like, oh, okay, it's no time for it. And both of them were like, whatever coach says, like they can, sometimes they can have fun and do stuff they want, but very rarely, most often they're not. The coach tells them what to do and they go, okay, this is my job. Like it's, it's net negative. It's a distracts from your performance to think about what you're doing. Yeah. I think the, the visual uh, representation of this in real world for most people is athletes ask me anything on Instagram stories. And like, Gareth has, Gareth, how many fucking thousand ask me's do you have up on Instagram? 3,000? I have no idea. Yeah. Like, I did nearly one every day for a year there at one yeah, stage. You've, you've like over a thousand anyway. Um, when you're asking athlete questions, like these are unbelievably valuable insights into the life and times of, of what an elite human being is, right? Um, but you asking an athlete who is genetically predisposed to incredibly good, like if I'm six foot one with femurs that are five foot eight long uh, and I go, Garf, how do I squat like you being fully upright with incredible, it's, it's impossible, right? The athlete's going to do their best possible uh, attempt to answer that question. He'll probably say, get better ankle mobility, get bigger quads, um, be in better shape and squat more that doesn't mean you're going to be able to squat like girth afterwards because it's physically impossible to do that and i think when you see people in the same way where like people can cut through the bullshit an awful lot more with supplements or i think a lot of the people we speak to on a regular basis have kind of better views and better insights and they're a bit more analytical but a lot of people seem to be able to cut through the bullshit of like uh whoever like this influencer said they take bcaas once a day and their recovery, like that's how they recover, but they're clearly on gear, right? People seem to be able to see through that with supplements or with mm-hmm. red light therapy or with whatever, CBD oil. Yet they still kind of lag behind when it's training modalities. Um, and I, I don't know, is it because the commercialization of of supplements and and all these additives has happened a bit earlier and people have more experience of being sold these things online or or even on TV. They've been like, these things have been pushed on people and shilled by people for years. Um, but it's just important to note that like all of the, all of the other stuff is get, still getting pushed and shilled at you as well. You just don't realize it. Fitz, I'm so glad we live in an echo chamber in our own podcast because you, you raised some great points there and there's a couple of them I want to touch on them. Go on. Okay, the first one is like... Uh, is a great point is often athletes might might thrive in spite of might thrive in spite of a shit program in spite of shit te- technique and of in shit coaching like all of the things might mean not be in the favor of poor environment like like poor nutrition very often just good genetics like we're talking about one in seven billion genetics one in a million genetics like such rare genetics that no matter what's thrown at you, you know that saying, my least favorite saying in the world, where it's like hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work. Yeah. That's not, that's a complete representation of the word talent. Talent by definition is the best at what they do. So the other point I wanted to raise is, you know, I hate when athletes go, I didn't have good genetics for this. I worked hard for this. You can have good genetics and work hard as well. The de- the very, by the very definition of genetics for our talent regards sports, if you ended up winning, 
If you won, that means you had the best genetics. That's what that means. If you won, you had the best genetics. There's no, oh, you know, you hear this from our champions and stuff. I work for stuff. That is incorrect. Like, that is not what genetics mean. If you didn't have good genetics, you wouldn't have won because someone yeah. else would have had better genetics than you. And it annoys me so much, you know. And that, like, ties in with, like, very often people, you, like, let's take the Bulgarians, for example. They clearly thrived in spite of, not because of. That's not the best training method. It isn't. It just fucking isn't the best training method, you know. And they clearly thrived in spite of that because of no drug testing, incredible extreme pressure not to go back to jail and a lot of drugs so yeah. you just can't get beyond those no, no and the genetic thing is is very interesting in itself right because for sprinting is a great example of this um and like i know if you kind of have a passing interest in sprinting and you would watch like the diamond league and stuff but for years it was taught in sprinting and like when i say for years now we're talking back to the 20s 30s and 40s a sprinter short in stature um of relatively short legs so very very high um rate of cycling of their legs not a long stride length and somebody whose center of gravity was quite low was thought to be genetically predisposed to being better at sprinting right what you see now in sprinting and there's obviously exceptions to the rule. What you see now in sprinting is Usain Bolt, who is six foot four, six foot five, is he? He's a tall, limmy person with elongated stride lengths uh, compared to what you previously would have seen. And when you start doing biomechanical analysis of really high level sprinters, you see longer legged athletes are going to be better just because they can not only impart more force, but they can impart more force for longer. And this still hasn't caught up, right? So the genetic pool in uh, female sprinting, for example, still hasn't caught up where taller sprinters are doing better than shorter sprinters because it just, it literally hasn't been around long enough. So when you start looking at genetics and he's genetically gifted for X, Y, or Z, genetic, the genetic gift or the prime genetic pool for a certain sport changes and evolves year by year and competition by competition so when you may have had a previously when you may have thought like the perfect swimmer is a fairly moderate body shape their proportions are going to be all fairly even when you look at prime swimmers now and the best swimmers in the world they're going to have a huge big long torso that's like a canoe in the water they're going to have arms that are similar in length to like the ratio of a monkey's arms to his torso so really really long big arms and then the shortest slenderest legs you could ever imagine so like the 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 thing of like what is the best genetics is like saying what's the best shoe the best shoe changes every year because it keeps getting better the sport changes how we interact with a piece of equipment changes so i'm like in 20 years time the prime genetics for a rugby player is going to be different from what we consider prime genetics to be right now you know even weightlifting is probably the least best example of in terms of sports to talk about athletes not possibly being the best source of information because weightlifting in some ways requires it does require a little bit of introspection in mm. terms of like progression like you know we've heard um i've like off the top of my head i've andrea ram now talking about it 
Uh, her Gabriel talk about it too, where they said they made every mistake you could possibly make in terms of technique before they had good technique. And I, I, I totally believe that. Like, I, I, that's, I'm assuming that's incredibly correct. Yeah. But if you look at other sports, like you mentioned Usain Bolt, um, apparently his strides or his running technique was horrendous. Like, it was incredibly unorthodox. It's borderline useless to listen to or watch or whatever, you know. But yet he obviously broke the world record m- multiple times, you know. Um, like other sports, they care even less. They think even less about what they're doing than weightlifting. And the, if you consider the examples they've given you, um, you know, another thing I wanted to raise as well is, and it probably the most important point. Why would you assume an elite athlete is a good coach when they've coached zero people or had any, they've spent zero time coaching? Why would you assume that? Why would you assume that? So they have a good basis because they have a great experience. But why would you assume that their first time interacting or disseminating knowledge would be correct why would you why the why the fuck would you assume that like yeah, why would you yeah, assume yeah. someone who's driven a car for 15 years didn't would know how to fix your car why would you assume that that makes no sense like that just makes zero sense i think that's the craziest one you know yeah but there's a certain thing as well which comes with um coaching and like that coach athlete relationship that people feel like they want to be associated with this I want to be associated with this coaching structure because this coaching structure is cool and I have the t-shirt from them and they are in my favorite YouTube videos and they're, it's a lot more than just like, there's an emotional aspect to, tra- to picking a strategy or picking a program. And there definitely is, you know, like there's an emotional aspect. People enjoy saying they've done small off because it's like a rite of passage for a weightlifter or powerlifter trying to get a squat of a certain level they've been training for a certain amount of time and you're almost guaranteed to hear that they've done small of or people want to be on uh, a program from a certain country because they feel the aesthetic of the lift is very pleasing and the aesthetic of the lift matters to them a lot i think there's an awful lot more emotion goes into listening to athletes and interacting with athletes because this is a a fucking pastime for people you know like it's not like the Suarez example where he has a limited time to make his money in weightlifting and be a professional athlete and be the best he can and win gold medals this for people I think is just a pastime it's their passion they fucking love doing this and for a lot of people it's more important for them to be able to say I do this program or I follow this guy's um, blog because they enjoy this guy or this girl more than they enjoy making actual progress. Like, even if you look at, like, you know, we've known Gabriel for a good couple of years now, like, and, and the way he talks about weightlifting has changed so much, you know, and he'd probably seem to say that himself for, you know, I know I know he's done, like, kind of basically continuous development courses, like, he's educated himself on, like, sports science and stuff like that. So, like, obviously, Gabriel is great, and we've learned a lot from Gabriel 100%. Yeah. We're not saying we, we haven't, like, that would be completely lie to say we didn't, but... You know, when he was he was raw when we initially met him from weightlifting, you know, in terms of the system. And like I'd say I haven't seen any of these programs in a while. Um I'd still talk to Gabriel weekly, but you know, I would be very interested to see what his programs would look like now compared to what he would have done initially in the first couple of years. And I, I bet you they would look a lot different. Or they'd be they may not look a lot different, but the subtleties would probably be a lot greater, I would imagine, in terms of applied to him who's getting what. Now, I think like just to really sum up the podcast is like it's a very important the best are the best for a reason so you should definitely look at what they're doing and you should look at like 
not the differences between what the best people are doing because they're probably the least important things you should definitely look at what the the most common things that happen among the best people so in weightlifting for example most weightlifters have big squats and they try to snatch and clean and jerk north of 90 percent as much as they possibly can without getting hurt that's what you should be looking at not at the 844 Chinese assistance exercises that Chinese lifters do, but other countries don't do. You know, you people are really focusing on the wrong things. Um, you know, like in the in the boxing video where like Anthony Joshua, people focusing on us ragging on the weighted punches and stuff, but like you're focusing on on Anthony Joshua is doing strength and conditioning, and he's a very talented athlete. Yeah, you know that's what you should be looking at. Yeah, and I, it's natural for people to see the contrast. And for people to see the outliers in a program without them seeing the commonalities, because it's just assumed that they're everywhere. But like there's outliers within strength or sorry, there's commonalities within strength training in good athletes that mediocre or uh, pastime weightlifters don't ever, ever pick up on, you know, and like the my favorite or my go to example is like how physically fit and capable a lot of them are right and you can obviously point the outliers of like there's some fucking ex-russian weightlifters now who can still clean and jerk 200 kilos but they look like they wouldn't be able to wipe their own ass but there are almost every modern weightlifter now is like does gpp work does aerobic work of some sort does look after their health they're not getting out of breath for walking up the stairs because they did 20 weeks of squatting and they didn't do any general work when they were doing it like nobody wants to look at that that's like they'll just divert their eyes when they look at everybody else's <laughs> training programs and i think it's like it's partly their fault for not looking it out and seeking it out but it's also the fault of like that stuff is in no way flashy so it doesn't get put up in like uh the weightlifting house news show never shows the 40 minutes of bike erg work that people do every two days you know or their people don't put it on their story when they're just doing like their fucking uh jogging and sprinting as their warm-ups because it's not really flashy and it's not why people follow them but they're the kind of intricacies of like you should be looking at that as success leaving clues and try and bring that into your own training like if you you know, again, like to kind of read it to the point that the coaches are very often, if you can access them, the people you want to listen to in that regard, because if you look at like the chain of knowledge and where the knowledge was passed down to, and then who kind of expanded on that knowledge and who collected all that data and thought about it and then carried it on and then taught it to other people, it wasn't the elite athletes. It wasn't the 12 year old who came into the sport. It was the, the chain of four or five coaches, yeah. if you're very, very lucky, who collected all the data and showed what was useful you know and like if like you know talk about the russians this is a lot of stuff at the moment like the amount of data they have over 50 60 years and obviously they have a lot of data recently but you know we don't have access to that but if you look at like what they did to the 50s 60s 70s 80s you know they had so much data and it wasn't the athletes individual athletes they were just a number in this data and they were they weren't the ones collecting it you know and this is not the ragged athletes again it's not their job to start yeah. as an athlete and start as a coach it's not Again, just can't read it enough. It's not their job. It's not it's not a shot at athletes and it's not to say elite athletes can't be good coaches or aren't good coaches, but it's very, very important that you should make the default assumption that an elite athlete is going to be in any way useful in terms of conveying knowledge to you. Yeah. I think the last point I'd want to make on this curve is like the skill of pedagogy. And like pedagogy is some people might have heard it before, but it's basically the te like pedagogy is teaching and the skill of teaching and the act of teaching. 
um and we we recorded a video earlier today about like better ways or ways of getting your technique better um and one of the things you brought up with cueing as a negative for like a coach who's really focused on cueing is that if you have a coach who's not able to translate their point well the the value of the cue will go down and i think like pedagogy is something that if you're a PT or a coach listening to this or you're involved with developing athletes or developing skills in people in general, um, specific skill building around pedagogy is something you can't uh, you can't underrate. So like a a general coaching course where people really focus on like this is the kind of language you should use. This is the kind of communication stream you should use. Um this is an adequate amount of information to be translating on each cue. This is too little information. This is too much. So, like, there's a skill in teaching people, um, and we've all had shit teachers in school, and we've all had great teachers, hopefully, at some stage when we were in school. So you will have uh, experienced this in some way. Like, you might have had a, a teacher for science who was so fucking good at science it didn't even feel like you were in class. Whereas you might have had a teacher for french who made everything seem so fucking horrendous and that is the last point is like pedagogy and the skill of being able to teach and like coaching is just teaching it's it's teaching in a physical realm like the skill of actually being able to teach effectively is hugely underrated and, and people almost never look for that in a coach like they look for previous results they look for athletes who are currently on the books they look at value and like value propositions before they join but they're rarely like how good is this coach at explaining a topic to me so i think the last thing i just want to say is that obviously we will continue to aggressively pursue any interactions with elite athletes yeah. as much as possible to learn from them and their coaches you know from now until the end of whenever just to make that clear like we did decide that you know oh but we've learned all we can from the athletes you know just no. make sure like at, at any opportunity you'll continue to learn from them but for your own sake because it's definitely a thing that kind of permeates the training circles you know just question things or think about you don't have to question them or aggressively deny them just think about what they're saying and then consider is it does it match up you know does yeah. it does it make sense like is it something like can you even can you consider it you know yeah absolutely like when you see somebody with phenomenal mobility you probably don't need to ask them how their front rack is so good right now or how their ankle mobility is so good you probably need to ask mm -hmm. did was their ankle mobility always so good or did they work to achieve it you know yeah i know what you're talking about um <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks for listening guys um so just to let you know again we've released our three snatch programs last week so week overhead, week pull, or swinging the bar, and then just a good old-fashioned eight weeks for max snatch. So if you weren't aware of those, go check them out. Eight weeks, two sessions a week. And they are, there's some good stuff. Obviously, pulls and assistance and all your snatch work.